This is the 966, the podcast and show on all things Saudi from the two guys who produce the most widely read daily email newsletter on the kingdom. Episode 17, Mashallah Richard. Uh, this, this week, we've got a really awesome slate of topics. We'll be talking about the kingdom's 2022 budget, the Duria, uh, Duria, excuse me, Art Biennale ongoing now outside Riyadh and the Red Sea Film Festival, which just wrapped in Jeddah. Before we get started, I'll make this quick. As always, we must begin by thanking all of you who have subscribed, pounded that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Shukran. Um, and we also love hearing from you guys. Our listenership continues to grow. We see that in the numbers on the podcast, but also um, all of you who have reached out to us, uh, have gotten in touch. We love hearing from you. So thanks for that. Um, Richard, let's get going here. Uh, what's your one big thing this week? Okay. Um... Last week, the Saudi Ministry of Culture hosted the Riyadh Philosophy Conference, a two-day event that invited thinkers from around the world to discuss philosophy and its contemporary applications. This year's theme of unpredictability focused on ethics and morality, scientific advancement, and the rapid acceleration of technology. Let me, let me share three quotes. Uh, Muhammad Hassan Awan, Chief Executive of the Ministry of Culture's Commission for Literature, Publishing, and Translation said, this conference is just one element of a wider embrace of philosophy and critical thinking that includes integrating it into the curriculum for Saudi students. Engaging will help our people, especially the next generation, to adopt a more analytical approach to what they read and hear and make them better equipped to navigate an increasingly complex world, not least the huge changes taking place within Saudi Arabia. So that's Chief Executive Ministry of Culture. Uh, Abdullah Al-Muteri, an associate professor at King Saud University and president of the administrative board at the Saudi Philosophy Society, added, Social media and the Internet has enabled Saudi society to become exposed to different issues. By making these conversations institutionalized, we change them into a scientific discussion that teaches people to respect other opinions. This help, helps curb extremism and radicalism where provocative thoughts are used to push certain agendas. Finally, Michael Sandel, a Harvard University professor described by the Times Literary Supplement as the most important and influential living philosopher, was a virtual speaker at the conference and engaged extensively with the students in the audience. He remarked, is this a genuine opening for philosophy and critical thinking, or is it simply for PR? I'm not sure. Only time will tell. All I can say is I think that if there is a possibility of encouraging philosophy and critical thinking in Saudi Arabia, that's a possibility worth exploring. If the participants left the session continuing to debate the ethical dilemmas we discussed, I'd call it a success, at least as a first step. It remains to be seen, of course, what the system will allow. Uh, the Riyadh Philosophy Conference is intended to be an annual event. Fascinating stuff. The visit by Michael Sandel, Professor Sandel. Um, it's particularly interesting. I mean, this is one of those things in Saudi Arabia, like free, free thought, free speech. I mean, if you think about Vision 2030, there are a lot of promises made in Vision 2030. They're promising to reform the economy, to reform society, to provide a better quality of life for the Saudi people. I mean, it's really just a complete overhaul of everything Saudi. But one thing that is not promised is free speech, free assembly. Um, so this was, you know, one of those things where it, it, you know, you could look at it and say, well, this is a one-off thing. Maybe they're doing it for some press or just to have something 
to, to point to as you know evidence that this is ongoing. But Vision 2030 makes no promises about free speech, um, you know, anything like that. So this is a really, really interesting, um, big, interesting thing this week, because that's that we were both reading the story earlier this week, just commenting on how unique this is. I mean, and how rare it is to see something like this in Saudi Arabia. There's a we'll have to have a ses- an episode on this. There's something called the GCC consensus, which is in essence uh, recognition that these authoritarian authoritarian states, as they want to open up socially, uh, that doesn't extend to the political realm, mm-hmm. um, which may or may not be of interest to the the majority of the population, as long as you know governance is is uh, competent. Um, this. Riyadh Philosophy Conference is fascinating in that, you know, what the heck, they'll go on it. But you do you do start a, a ball rolling in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the issues with the Saudi educational system is it's been very Islamic-oriented, you know, reading from the Quran and very rote. And uh, critical thinking has not been a, a big feature of it. There's something they'd like to introduce. Part of critical thinking is uh, asking all lots of questions and, and you know, assessing and perhaps questioning the existing structures and and that sort of thing so uh, i think it's i think it's great that they uh, have tried this uh, i hope they continue it and uh, but you know managing change for an emerging uh, country like saudi arabia that's going through some fundamental changes is the challenge mm-hmm. uh, so it's going to be interesting and like i think i think uh, professor sandal hit it right you know it remains to be seen, of course, what the system will allow. Uh, but it's, it, 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 this requires more conversation. I, I feel like Saudi Arabia right now is feeling really confident about things and is more comfortable with exploration of these uh, social experiments. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, my one big thing this week, Expo 2030. Richard, it's official. Saudi Arabia is throwing its hat into the ring to host Expo 2030. Um, the World's Fair in the past has changed mankind's history. The first World's Fair began in 1851 when London hosted the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations with 34 countries participating. Um, what's cool about the World Expo is that it really is a multifaceted event and it brings together innovation, culture, technology, entertainment, and unlike the World Cup and the Olympics and other global events, expos like the one currently ongoing in Dubai and the one that will be proposed that is being proposed uh, for Riyadh is primarily an in-person event. I mean, these are in-person event experiences. And by that, I mean, there's little experience through global media. You hear about what's going on, but expos are in person. You have to be there to experience it type events. Um, the uh, pitch was made by the Royal Commission for Riyadh City, RCRC, CEO, yeah. Fahad Al-Rashid. Um, and I know it seems like I'm a robot repeating myself, but it really must be said to think of Riyadh as a city able to host such an event just a few years ago would be quite difficult to envision. Um, just fascinating. So the decision will be made in 2023. There are five stages of um, approvals going on here and essentially um, there are four main competitors to Riyadh's bid. I believe it's Italy, um, South Korea. I actually do not have it in front of me. Um, Busan. And, uh, uh, yes, and, and Russia and the Ukraine. 
So we'll see how it goes. And we kind of have known this is in the works, but if they, if Riyadh gets it, that's a huge deal. And it would obviously time out well with Vision 2030's culmination in the same year. So I, I mean, I'm hoping they get it. Just it'd be fascinating to see. But I also feel like I can imagine it happening now, whereas I wouldn't have been able to just a few years ago. It's fascinating stuff. It, it is. Father Fahad Al Rashid's pitch to the Bureau of International Days Expositions. Um, uh, we all know that as the BIE. Um, is uh, it was uh, you know he he drew out a picture of what the, what the RCRC has. And has planned for Riyadh, and it's just extraordinary, you know, um, and obviously extraordinarily ambitious. So, you know, it would be quite the showcase if they could do uh, 2030, uh, Expo 2030, and, you know, in, in year 2030, a vision 2030. Uh, you know, we talked, we did, we did a little bit on this uh, in a previous episode, and I was thinking that they had come in late and they probably didn't have much of a shot. But I'm looking at the cities, and you mentioned Moscow, Rome, Odessa and Ukraine and Busan and South Korea. And you look at the, so 2010 was Shanghai, 2015 Milan, 2020 Dubai, 2025 Osaka. And, you know, just, and I, I have zero information on this, but just looking at that, Riyadh might be really competitive. If you ask me, it might come down to Riyadh or Rome, because I don't, I think Moscow and Odessa may not, may not, you know, there may be issues there. And, uh, in South Korea, they just, you know, 2025 is going to be in Osaka, so it'll be in Asia, you know, the previous year. So anyway, Riyadh might have a shot. Who knows? Who knows? But that would be, that would be pretty rad if they, uh, if they <laughs> want it. And you know that they would put on the, uh, put on the Ritz, as it were, for... Oh, my goodness. It'd I be mean, a you show. Know, they would take it? it super seriously. Yeah. So, and... Well, and, you know, he... Sorry to interrupt. He, you know, he was talking, you know, in, in addition to all the things they have for Riyadh, I mean, Kadia would be rolling by then, and... And uh, King Salman Park would be, uh, you know, would be in place. Uh, it, it, you know, Riyadh, as they, if they were to achieve some significant percentage of what they have planned, would be really transformed. Indeed, it will be interesting to see too if they are still pitching for the World Cup 2030, because that would just mean that Saudi Arabia would be oh, the yeah. it nation of 2030. Oh, my so um, we and that's will the see. one they thrown it. They thrown in with Egypt, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it'd be it'd be split between the two. But yes, uh, as we know, there is no no deficit of ambition with Saudi Arabia and they're pulling some of this stuff off. It's fascinating. On to topic one, Saudi Arabia's inaugural Daria Contemporary Art Biennale, which is underway and runs until March. It's getting a lot of a lot of praise, Richard, from critics and visitors alike. Writing in Artnet.com, Nadine Khalil called displays and performances in Riyadh right now going on. Um, paradigm shifting moments. On one performance, Khalil said, people seem compelled not just by the visceral choreography of women performing live, but by the act of witnessing this historic moment in the artistic life of a country. The art newspaper, another strong source in the industry, said the inaugural Biennale and the opening of the Hey Jamil in Jeddah are the latest in a series of initiatives helping the kingdom emerge from artistic isolation. The art newspaper goes on to say, Quote, while the dusty Riyadh era was thick with pronouncements of, quote, game-changing and even, quote, world-changing hyperbole, it was not far off. For the relatively isolated Saudi art scene, 2021 and 2022 will be a moment of decisive shift. 
that sounds like we wrote it, Richard. Um, the Biennale in Saudi Arabia <laughs> is not just a major art event. It's the latest in a list of things to happen in Saudi Arabia that used to be hard to imagine just a few years ago. It's going to be the theme of this podcast. Um, Richard, awesome, cool stuff happening um, with the uh, Biennale. Really amazing photos online of, of art. You just, you know, that's kind of the, the mind-blowing contemporary stuff that you see. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's cool. I would. I, I want to second that. That that Nadine Khalil article in Artnet entitled "Saudi Arabia's Art World Has Long Been an Outlier" with its first ever homegrown Biennale. 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 <laughs> it's looking to usher in a new chapter. That's a really good article, mm-hmm. and I would definitely recommend it. You know, December in terms of arts, in terms of culture, uh, December twenty twenty one feels kind of like an inflection point for Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're you know, the Riyadh season is underway. Um, December's have been, it really seemed to kick into gear this this month. Um, they have the ongoing Riyadh art program, which is an immersive art experience that is ongoing. It's for artists and, and amateurs, and, and it's set up in Riyadh. And part of that program is to eventually put a thousand art pieces that are stra- installed all across the city. You have the Daria Biennale, the Hey Jamil that you mentioned, we'll get back to it, the Jetta F1. Red Sea Film Festival, uh, which just wrapped up, which I think we'll get to. Um, Soundstorm, which starts today mm-hmm. uh, in Riyadh. That's a four-day mega event, 150 artists uh, playing you know, across six state-of-the-art stages. Um, it's, it seems like an explosion, and I, uh, we always talk about we always talk about the grand nature of Saudi stuff. What I've come, as we got into this, and what I'm seeing more and more, what I'm beginning to believe more and more, is the same thing we talked about with sports washing. And we remember we talked about sports washing. and said so there's three facets. There's sports washing, there's investment, and then there's the tie back to what they're trying to accomplish in terms of society in Saudi Arabia. And I'm seeing as we get into these uh, cultural events, the really significant tie back into Saudi, Saudi society. And, and you see the, you see, you know, five years into Vision 2030, the, the vibrant society part of 2030 coming into play, where KSA is focusing on his people and his culture. And uh, this is an interesting quote, I thought, from uh, Rakan Al-Touk, uh, who's the General Supervisor of Strategy and International Relations at the Ministry of Culture. And he said, their program is one. Uh, the first is to ac- access to access culture locally. So this is really consistent with what we see. You know, all these heritage sites, tremendous focus on Alula and other UNESCO designated sites. You know, the the culture, um, trying to bring this forward as not only valuable but but also economically attractive. Uh, so, and that leads us to the second. The second, and this is Altuk talking, the second is, is culture is a mode of economic growth. So you see all this manifested in tourism and that sort of thing. But you also see it in quality of life uh, programs like Riyadh Art or MISC Foundation or the Red Sea International Film Festival. All these things are, are, are they, they combine the first two. They take, you know, the, the culture that's local and then they, monetize it in certain ways. So it's part of an economic proposition too. And the third one, again, according to Altuk, is the international engagement, which is what we're seeing this month, sort of, both in terms of the uh, Daria Biennale, which is, uh, the scope is tremendous. 
uh, we should go back and look at some of these numbers, but also the Red Sea Film Festival. So I, I'm impressed, and I'm sort of becoming a believer. Not that I, you know, I think you always have to have a healthy dose of skepticism with any kind of uh, government, any government announcement. Um, but how organic this seems to be, and and the whole program and the whole uh, strategy isn't just for show. I mean, it's 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 rolling up and including uh, the the public and the average Saudi citizen. One of the things that comes through in all these things that you read about Red Sea Film Festival or the uh, Daria Biennale or the Hey Jamil is how excited Saudis are. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the Daria Biennale. All right, so this is this features 64 artists from around the world with a focus on 27 Saudi artists. The Biennale Foundation commissioned 29 new works for the show. So again, it's a big showcase, but it's heavily features local artists and, and supports local artists. Um, uh, you know, both the, the Daria Biennale and the Hey Jamil, and the Hey Jamil is really interesting because that's the it's a Jamil Foundation. That's been around for a, a long time. And that's a private sector initiative. And that sort of arose out of the edge of Arabia that you remember started mm-hmm. around 2012. So, you know, an art uh, initiative. And, but both the, both the um, Biennale and the Hey Jamil, these are permanent structures. These are permanent, permanent um, installations. Uh, very big, large, and they're, they're, you know, that it's not only involved in, in showcases and exhibitions, but in uh, tutorials and classes and, and, and uh, seed money for art programs. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary, uh, and I think increasingly as I look at a cohesive approach uh, that works both inside and out. So, you know, we get, you know, we hear all the time, you know, uh, fill in the blank washing, you know, sports washing, green washing, anything, what Saudi Arabia is doing. But if you look at these programs in their entirety, they're really starting locally and moving out. And I, I especially want to talk about the Red Sea Film Festival as an example of this. Um, we know, we've covered this, you know, that, that, that Red Sea Film Festival is pretty awesome. It had 138 films from 65 countries in 34 languages. Uh, the festival... Uh, Winners included 16 features, 18 short films, and 21 virtual reality experiences. So just briefly, I'm going to read. So there's, there's, a, there's a list of winners. There was a number of prizes from Best Saudi Film to Best Screenplay to Best Film Overall, Jury Prize. Uh, I'm just going to go through, and there's about 12 of them. I'm going to just read some of, the, some of the origins of the people who created these. So you've got Saudi Arabia. Egypt, France, France, USA, Taiwan, Denmark, France, Jordan, Germany, Iran. Uh, the jury prize was given to hit the road by Panah Panahi, an Iranian who can't show this film in Iran. Um, to keep going on, Indonesia, Singapore, Kuwait, Georgia, Russia, Bulgaria, Monaco, USA, Iraq. Um, just a really impressive range. So, so there you've got the showcase end of it. But you know, announced during the Red Sea Film Festival was the Saudi Film Commission and their strategy for the cinema sector. And a huge part of that uh, was to develop homegrown talent. You know, so creating a film sector that can compete in terms of services, offerings, and incentives. You know, boosting domestic film production. Uh, embedding a regulatory framework that enhances the quick development of the sector. You know, so it's it's not just the hey, let's 
let's let's throw together a, a film festival and invite everybody to come in and and that sort of thing. It's let's let's develop our uh, homegrown cinematic ecosystem. Not only the the, the creative talent, but also the technical talent. Um, so you know, uh, uh, apropos to that, uh, Cello just wrapped up. We've talked about that. Cello is sort of that mystery thriller that Turkey El Sheikh, the head of the uh, General Entertainment, Entertainment Authority, wrote, and it stars Jeremy Irons. And and the guy who um, the director, uh, let me get his name, uh, Lee Nelson, was saying it was awesome. It was great to do it there, and we got a lot of help. And they, in fact, worked with a Saudi production company who provided all the local infrastructure. And, and, and he said they're very established. They have their own cameras. They're a 40-year-old company. that, uh, But, you know, they really have their experience is live events, not really movies. But, he, but when he ran through all the technical staff on the film itself, there weren't a lot of Saudis. And this is what, you know, the Saudi Film Commission wants to get into is, all right, when you come to Saudi Arabia, we're not only going to, we're not only going to incentivize you, as they just announced, with 40% cash rebate on you know eligible costs, which, by the way, is 10% more than the Emirates offers. Uh, no coincidence there. Um, is that not only when you come and you use these tremendous uh, backdrops and and site you know film locations, you're going to be using Saudi talent, and that's apart from what they're trying to do in terms of of promote and develop creatives, you know, the, the people who are writing and, and, and creating uh, content, which is all proceeding at breakneck speed, too. So I guess what I'm saying is, is when you look at these, you know, start from the beginning. This, you know, uh, December 2020 was a huge thing for these showcase events. And then you work down into them, the Art Biennale, Hey Jamil, the Red Sea Film Festival, and you see that uh, they're really sticking with a plan in terms of the the vision 2030 and that particular pillar of vibrant society of where the it's not just uh it's not just icing it's cake and it's ingredients and it's all the things that go down that that take advantage of saudi talent train saudi talent and to and again monetize the saudi talent this is all seen as part of you know an economic vision that uh and we see here jibing with a cultural vision it's uh, it's really fascinating to get into this um because it's it's you know, it can be dismissed so easily, but when you get into it, it's it's surprisingly comprehensive. I'm glad we're doing. I'm glad we're merging these these two topics here: the Red Sea Film Festival and the Art Biennale, because it's it. They're so so. I mean, they're you know, film and art. I mean, it's, they're both creative, but they're so tied tightly to the the culture and vibrant society element, as you just noted. And I was just thinking, as you were talking, Richard. You know, if you were thinking about a sort of sports washing continuum, okay, and you were to put on one side of it the <laughs> right. acquisition of um, Newcastle United, you know, based in in the UK and owned by the PIF, okay, well, you're going to get, you know, it's that that's one that's one discussion. But then on the far side of this is the film festival, and I think on the most extreme is the Art Biennale, where it's the the point of it is to encourage local artists and say, you know, explore your passion and, and develop your talents and do it here because you're you can do it now. And it's just something you just would not think of a while ago. And now it's, you know, the type of thing where you can say, okay, this this may be a little bit of sports washing, but I've seen virtually no 
you know, of that typical media negativity on Saudi events about the either the film festival or the especially the Biennale, because it's I mean, homegrown art talent in Saudi Arabia, this this watershed moment, this is really important for not just Saudi Arabia, but for the world. I mean, this means that artists that were not nurtured before are now being nurtured. It's just it's all good. So I think that's a really, really great point about developing, you know, local Saudi talent, eventually, you know, monetize it, it'll become an industry, it'll be it'll contribute to the economy, all of these things are true. But in the in the moment right now, it's this moment that reporters are, are sort of witnessing and chronicling saying, this is a changing place. And we can see it right here right now. And, and how do I know? Because there are five dancers all in gray, you know, <laughs> in some sort of um, abstract uh, display that really makes you think and Saudi Arabia is not a type of place that typically really makes you think and it's like it's just really cool to see this going on i should mention the uh, the red sea film festival by the way um the uh winning best saudi film was rupture by hamza jamjum mm-hmm. um who is a saudi filmmaker and brighton fourth won best film um which is which is cool i mean just all this stuff That's going it. on that, it's that like was, it all comes from, together yeah that contribution was from georgia right Yep. Yep. Right and forth. Yeah. Yes. And I also may add at this time that Naomi, Naomi Campbell looking stunning on the red carpet at 51 <laughs> uh, photographs published by the Daily Mail. My guilty reading pleasure these days. Um, <laughs> Mohammed Al-Turki, uh, chairman of the Red Sea Film Festival, said that he learned a lot uh, from this first one and that they're going to use that and build upon it for the second edition, which I think is really cool. I mean, this now you have these things starting starting to, you know, build a base and build a follower. And it's just like we always talk about, you got to push the snowball off the side of the mountain for it to roll over and start moving and start gaining mass. And that's sort of what Saudi Arabia is doing right now. We should mention too, that desert X Al begins in February, uh, the second one, which is a recurring site responsive art expo, uh, really cool stuff that, that happens, uh, in the desert. So all this stuff is, is tied together and it's, it's, it's really cool to see, frankly. You know, uh, if you go to Jeddah and it was especially prominent in the eighties, nineties and arts, uh, but even now, so uh, the Jenna Corniche is chock full of all these contemporary modern art installations. Some of them are, some of them are really good. Some of them aren't. Um, and that's because uh, you couldn't, you know, in, in terms of, you know, especially after 79, uh, uh, when all the events in, in Saudi Arabia went more conservative in response to that, uh, you, it, it, there was prohibitions in Islam against portraying the, the human form, so you didn't have you know uh, you know statues of people. You had you had contemporary art and modern art, um, and it's interesting because that impulse, you know, Jeddah being uh, like the age of Mila has been around, and uh, you know this impulse is very especially strong in Jeddah. It's coming to Riyadh now, the impulse to art, and you're going to have the same thing though over time. Uh, that uh, Riyadh Philosophy Conference has, and what you know, uh, Professor Sandel asked, you know, what will a load bear essentially? And mm-hmm. it's interesting that the head of the the Daria Biennale is uh, Philip Tenari, who's the head of the UCCA Center for Contemporary Art in Beijing, and and has been working in Beijing and, and China, and actually, you know, did an art in China after 1989 Theater of the World. Um, He's been dealing with these constraints, you know. Here's a, you know, here's a, a society that's opening up, but there are constraints. There are limits. What are those limits? Where are those touch points? Where are the, where are the hot 
you know, hot spots. Um, but it's fascinating to see the dynamic started. And I think to return to the beginning, Saudis are really excited about this. And it's very, even though we see the tip of the showcase and that sort of thing, it's still oriented to, to Saudi culture and Saudi uh, citizens activating themselves uh, in that vibrant society pillar. Yeah, and I, should, I just want to add to this. I mean, I think that, you know, just a few years ago, if you were to tell me that there's an event going on somewhere in the world, I would probably say that it's very unlikely that, that you wanted to go to or that everybody wanted to go to or wanted to see. I would say it's very unlikely that that event would take place in Saudi Arabia. Usually it would be Saudis saying, man, this thing's happening in New York City or London. We'd love to go. But now, like for you know, this contemporary art biennale, the film festival, you have to go to Saudi now if you want to be part of these things. And that's another thing that's built in here is just ties to the economy, but we're talking about tourism and a reason to go to Saudi Arabia and that those reasons are mounting now, which is interesting to me. Hey, you know, when I first lived in Saudi, I mean, the entertainment was passing around, uh, you know, pirated VHS tapes. You know, you, you didn't have satellite or anything like that. You certainly weren't going out to, you know, Daria Biennale or the Jetta F1 or Red Sea Film or the movie theater mm -hmm. or, you know, you know, scads and scads of great restaurants. It's just, it's just different. It's, it's really cool. So or Soundstorm, I mean, Soundstorm, you know. I mean, Soundstorm, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see David Guetta this week, I mean, you're going to have to go exactly. to Saudi Yeah, you got to be in Riyadh. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, Richard, let's move on. And of course, like every meal I've ever cooked, I misordered uh, the arrangement <laughs> yeah, here. You, but let's now I, get- I'm with you. I'm with you in the kitchen. I got my, my apron's a little dirty, but I'm with you in the kitchen. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good sign when it gets a little dirty. It means you're really, you know, putting some muscle <laughs> exactly. into it. Exactly. Um, let's move away from culture and into nerd territory. Saudi Arabia's 2022 budget, it's final. Um, and the Saudi economy has a head of steam going into 2022. The kingdom released its final budget for the 2022 fiscal year um, following the endorsement from the Council of Ministers, December 12th. Uh, a few changes, but as expected, Saudi Arabia is, is expected to register its first fiscal surplus since 2013. Despite the kingdom's strong position, the budget notes that it will not spend more next year. Total expenditure for 2022 is set to be 254.56 billion, 6% lower than actual expenditure from this year, 2021. Um, the budget announcement comes on the back of mounting evidence of a Saudi economy that is set to have a pretty big year next year. Uh, the economy expanded 7% in the third quarter of this year, the highest rate since 2012. And Riyadh said on Sunday, it expected the economy to grow 2.9% this year, 2020 and 7.4% next year, 2022. Wow. I mean, there's, there's always a lot on when the budget is announced. It's sort of an annual event every year. It's kind of unique to Saudi Arabia in a way, but Richard, let's start peeling this apart. This is, there's great data in here for Saudi Arabia, but there's a lot going on here. I love this. And again, the fiscal responsibility is, I, I just am very excited about. So just to add to that, so the projected financial surplus for 2022 is $24 billion. Projected, of course, you know, so that's what they're doing. And they, they've done it, they seem to be done it responsibly, conservatively. And, and they've already said it, you know, the, the Minister of Finance has already come out and said, this budget surplus will go to the National Development Fund to finance the private sector projects, the public investment fund, and to pay off debts. Uh, and also, by the way, we'll also be trying to promote, you know, growth of small and medium enterprises 
and continue with the structural transformations that you know we're, we've got underway. Uh, and I also might add that in terms of that Saudi economic growth, uh, 7.4%, which is which is really impressive. Uh, the predicted inflation for 2022 is is you know about expected to be about 1.3%, and then 2% in 2023, which is good because it was it was up to 5% earlier uh, in 2020 after the VAT went up. So that's back under control. Uh, there are three things I really like about this budget. Um, and first and foremost is predictability. And Mohammed al-Jadan, the, the finance minister, said, this is his quote, I think it's a money quote, we are totally now decoupling the government expenditure from the revenue. We are telling our people in the private sector or the economy at large that you can plan with predictability. Budget ceilings are going to continue in a stable way regardless of how the oil price or revenues are going to happen. Mm -hmm. This is huge. So as a point of comparison between 2000 and 2016, actual government spending was on average 23% higher than budgeted levels. Meaning if there was a windfall, you know, and you know, we know for there were in the middle of, you know, in the, in, in between about 2011 and 2013, there are four years where oil was at or over a hundred. So this money would come in and it'd be spent, you know, beyond the uh, projected budget. So, since um, Vision 2030 has been applied, the average is 3.6% of overspent, so between 2017 and 2019. And so what they're, they're trying to, to create a much more consistent, predictable environment, which is huge for companies. Um, you know what's coming, you can plan for what's coming, you can trust what's coming. Uh, and on top of that, the, you know, the, the, a lot of times those those budget surpluses, you know, previously were spent on expensive, sticky things like sort of, you know, expanding government employees, uh, which, you know, a bonus here, increased salary there. And so, you know, not only are you, you sort of pumping money in the least efficient part of your uh, economy, but these are sticky things that st stay around. You have to deal with again in, in future budgets. And one of the things I like about this is in 2022, the compensation to, to government employees, which is 132.5 billion, will not increase from 2021. So that, th that those expenses are flat. Again, something that's not usual when there's a bounce in income. Uh, the second thing I really like, and it's something we've talked about repeatedly on here, is the non-oil income. You know. Uh, so they predict 75.5 billion in tax revenue in 2022. Uh, so that's a decline over 2021's uh, 79 billion. And I think part of that decline is important because we'll get into it, but the VAT, some of the VAT regulatory uh, requirements were a little messy and people were getting used to it. They, they've adjusted them and that sort of thing. They've backed, you know, they've given exceptions to certain things. And so, so that VAT income has declined. So, for example, last year, seven, last year in 2022, it was 49. I mean, last year. I mean, this year, 2021, it, it was uh, just under 50 billion, which is about 63% of non-oil income, total non-oil revenue. Next year is expected to be 30 billion, which is about 40% of total non-oil revenue. So, even though the economy is growing, VAT is declining. What that tells me is the government is working with the private sector in saying, all right, we applied VAT. You know, we, we 
January 2018, we did 5%, and then we shocked the world in uh, July 2020 or June 2020, and we went to 15%. Everyone is adapting, catching up. What are the regulators? What are the reporting requirements? This and that. So it seems to me that they've been listening to the private sector and say, okay, this works, that doesn't work. Let's get some exceptions there. Let's let's regularize this so everybody can report, and it's not uh, you know a complex, expensive process to comply with VAT. So to me, that's a good sign. Um, third thing I really love is the restraint. So the OPEC data anticipates a four percent growth in 2022 in oil demand, so just over 100 million barrels per day. Um, and it looks like the Saudi Arabia's budget forecast is based on a $75 barrel price for Brent crude. The U.S. Energy Information EIA forecasts an average price of $72 a barrel for Brent in 2022. So Saudi Arabia's budget forecast would require a fiscal break-even Brent price of about $65. So it's given itself a little cushion with the inevitable ups and downs and this sort of thing of the, the oil price. Uh, so all in all, just a really responsible document. And those things, predictability, you know, the growth in non-oil income, which cushions the fluctuations in oil revenue, and the restraint in terms of their projections, just uh, has to be really encouraging. I'm really encouraged by it. There's two things really that stand out to me that it's just sort of like, it's not in this document, it's not in the budget, but you just are sort of hit with these feelings. One is competence. I mean, you you really just highlighted it very well, so I won't go too far into it, but it's things like reducing defense spending by 10%. I mean, you see mm -hmm. a lot of things in this budget that indicate things that will it actually lead me right to my next point. There's a And you mentioned this uh, on a sort of off-record off call we had earlier this week, Richard. There's a, there's a confidence now in policy making and decision making from a budget standpoint i mean there's a uh, it's just sort of it's hard to describe it there's like a hey we've got a vision here and we see where we're going and you know oil prices up and down you know non-oil revenue up and down but where we're going is the way is the direction we want to be going in and so these things that are happening in the short term rise in oil um you know name it, it it's it's you know these things are kind of pushing us one way or the other, but the direction of the ship is going forward to where our vision is. And that is sort of a, a you know, a, a, a confident government making decisions. And it, it's really cool to see that. Um, the uh, Jedwa Investment based in Riyadh does really good stuff on the mm -hmm. Saudi economy all year. Almost everything they publish, they share to investors and the media. We share on the our website, sustg.com. Check the whole budget report is there in English and in Arabic. Um, go to our website, sustg.com, and ch check it out because there's a lot of stuff in there that may not generate headlines, but as you get into it, you're just like, whoa, I mean, defense spending uh, decreased. Uh, this is interesting. So um, check that out there. Um, and now, Richard, if I may, we <laughs> are going to pivot to our final segment. We're launching a new segment of this podcast. Um, we are calling this one Yella Saudi in a minute. And what we're going to do here is we're going to quickly go through some of the top headlines this week in Saudi Arabia to get you all caught up before the weekend. And um, I should I should add, you know, it's come to a point now where we can't jam them all in. There's so much going on. So these are these are six headlines that we we weren't it didn't didn't rise to the level of a one big thing or a, a topic for an episode, but are are topical nonetheless. And and you know so. Yes, this is our, this is our Saudi in a minute. And section. I should I should say that Saudi Arabia. I mean, we so you know we 
as we note in the introduction of this podcast, we produce a daily newsletter. Um, we've been doing it for over a decade. And so we're, we're in touch with Saudi Arabia 365 days of the year. So you really notice when there's a big uptick in events and news with Saudi Arabia, it becomes almost hard to sort of wrap your head around because in late August, uh, Saudi Arabia isn't quite as busy as it is now, but December has been quite the month for Saudi Arabia. So just wanted you know, to add that because there's a lot going on. Yeah, Lucian, I would add to that. And it's something that, that I felt was always the case. When you're this deeply immersed in things, you, you not only notice events and reporting and that sort of thing, but you notice subtle trends like language being used, you know, words uh, that uh, become regularized and normalized. So things that, you know, people might think are controversial, all of a sudden is being discussed as a matter of fact. And though, and even without there's a change of policy, you see that policy, there's a change in attitudes uh, that's coming or will, you know, underpin a change in policy. But, you know, that's just further to your point. It's, it's really fascinating just to watch these, uh, I don't know what the term is, but, you know, non-obvious clues that, uh, that appear. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well said. Let's kick it off, Richard. I'm going to let you start first. All right, F1. We just had the Jetta F1 uh, last week, uh, well, last weekend. Uh, F1 record viewing. Sky F1 has reported a record number of viewers for last weekend's Saudi Arabian GP, the most since it took over broadcasting rights 10 years ago. Wow. It was also the first F1 that I've ever watched. So I can, I was one of those record number of viewers. That's, uh, it's interesting. That was a fascinating, that was a fascinating race on an amazing track. Next, Alexa goes Saudi. Amazon on, on Tuesday launched Alexa in Saudi Arabia, offering customers an all new localized language experience in Arabic Khaliji dialect. Uh, our, our, our good friend who was on our last episode, Fahad Al-Malki said, all right, so what, what are they going to name it? Is it going to be Alexa? Oh, they're going to have a thing, have a, you know, a different name for it. And uh, I was thinking they should do, the, you know, a, a public poll to get a name for the new Alexa in Saudi. That'd be good press. <laughs> Although the problem is, you remember the British Polar Research Ship? Oh, yeah. They did, they did a, poll, a $200 million craft, and the winning vote in a public survey was Bodie McBoatface. Bodie McBoatface, yeah. Bodie McBoatface. And all the other ones that, were really offensive, too. <laughs> eventually, he was named after Sir David Attenborough, so it was, it was much more prosaic. But I don't think that would happen in, in Riyadh, but it might be fun to see what the name, you know, the, the uh, you know, Saudi version of Alexa name might, might turn out to be. <laughs> Totally, especially the especially the ones that didn't quite get as many votes, but were done in sar Saudi sarcasm, which is uh, really an interesting thing. You're next here. Oh, uh, camel Botox, Saudi, Saudi Arabia's popular King Abdul uh, King Abdulaziz Camel Festival, which kicked off earlier this month, invites the breeders of most beautiful the most beautiful camels to compete for some sixty six million in prize money. Botox injections, facelifts, and other cosmetic alterations to make the camels more attractive are strictly prohibited. 40 entrants to date have been disbarred and removed. Richard, I am all natural Botox less, I should <laughs> let you know. So I, I agree with the festival organizers on this one. Let's well, have the know, real camels here. Exactly. Camels, coffee, <laughs> dates, and smartphones. Do not mess with Saudi traditions. <laughs> Smartphone. Uh, that's good. Um, 
The U.S. Senate backs a $650 million missile sale to Riyadh, despite some opposition. In a 67-30 to 30 vote, the Senate handily defeated an effort to block the sale of air-to-air -air missiles and related equipment to Saudi Arabia, a longtime U.S. strategic ally. These were uh, missiles for defense, primarily. Right. Uh, yes. In a moment of clarity, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said, Saudi Arabia is literally surrounded by violent threats conceived and funded and orchestrated by Iran. A vote to block the sale of defensive military systems to Saudi Arabia would undermine one of our most important regional partners. Good on you, Mitch. No ah, comment. Spartan, <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, but I, I want to add that, that I think it was also interesting that uh, Chris Murphy, who's also a, a senator from Connecticut, is often critical of Saudi Arabia. He voted for it. So some yeah. bipartisanship on Capitol Hill. Amazing. Yeah. Spartan race, one of the most one of the region's most formidable fitness challenges, returns to Saudi Arabia in January as Riyadh and the Saudi Sports for All Federation prepare to host the Spartan race. I couldn't finish it. I'm sure I have not seen the actual race <laughs> itself, but I would require yeah, you could do it. personally require a lot of training to make my way through that. But um, uh, January 21st is the date of that at Durab Park. Um, so if you're local in Saudi and you are physically fit, check it out. Last one they did in uh, in 2019 before the pandemic was in the Asir, and I guess 1,500 competitors and spectators took part. So, oh. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, and our final one, Richard, today, the Permian, uh, the U.S. Permian, uh, uh, supplies from the U.S. Permian Basin uh, will rise to a record number in December. The Permian Basin, Permian Basin which straddles West Texas and New Mexico, um, is projected to pump 4.96 million barrels a day in December, according to the EIA. And headed to 5 million barrels for January. And my only response to this, Lucian, since you've heard me on this many times, is... Duh. Frack, baby, frack. I mean, well, you're, so you're telling me the the market might take care of itself when it when it comes to oil production, supply and demand. That's interesting. Know. Yes, as we as I always say, you know, OPEC sets the floor, U.S. shale sets the ceiling because U.S. shale is agnostic. They don't they don't have a they don't have a political agenda. If there's money to be made, they'll eventually come off the sidelines as as the price gets higher. Well, and, here, put, and, and they're starting to come off. Let's put a big old holiday bow on this, my new favorite uh, segment of the podcast. This was great. This was fun. We'll do this every week. Um, and again, if you're listening to this, wherever you're listening to this, if you hit the subscribe button, the podcast will go directly to your phone and just kind of save you the, the hassle of, you know, going to find us each week. Um, it'll just let you know that it's downloaded and it's there. It doesn't cost you anything, but it just makes it easier for you to get it and helps us a lot. So hit the subscribe button um, and we'll see you next week. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. Good one.